Salofalava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up... They're not going to treat Pacific people well. I'm pretty confident about that. And I want to be free to speak up and speak out. Pacific and health leaders in New Zealand are saddened and surprised by Sir Collins' resignation. Also... We cannot sign on to text that does not have strong commitment on phasing out fossil fuels. Climate campaigners are condemning the latest draft of the COP28 agreement. And later, with 45 years of history, the iconic Malta Samoa building in central Auckland has much to celebrate. Pacific leaders and medical practitioners say they're saddened and surprised after a shock resignation by a prominent health leader in New Zealand. Sir Colin Tukuitonga's decision to resign from his government advisory roles, including as chair of Te Whatu Order's Pacific Senate, has had a ripple effect across the New Zealand health sector and especially within Pacific communities. He told RNZ Pacific the reason for stepping down was because he had no confidence in the New Zealand government. Alicia Foon reports. A shock resignation during the second week under the new coalition government. One of New Zealand's leading voices in health, Sir Colin Tukuitonga, revealing the real reasons for stepping down from almost every advisory role, including as chair of Te Whatu Order's Pacific Senate. I have no confidence in they're going. They're not, they're not going to treat Pacific people well. I'm pretty confident about that. And I want to be free to speak up and speak out. Sir Colin is a Nguyen-born New Zealand doctor, public health academic, public policy expert and advocate for reducing health inequities for Māori and Pacifica people. The fact is I was appalled at the decision to repeal the smoke-free legislation because it's Māori and Pacific people who are going to pay the price. That really annoyed me no end. I thought it was immoral. The government needs to do better for and with uh, Māori. They have some of the worst uh, health outcomes in the country, same as our people. There have since been tributes and support backing his decision by Pacific leaders like former Minister of Pacific Peoples, Alpito William Seal. Surprised by Colin's resignation, but fully understand it. And it's better that he's outside, not cheering the Pacific Senate because as a professional and as a clinician, you want that voice to be able to critique publicly the government's new direction in terms of health. Meanwhile, in a statement, Health Minister Dr Shane Reti, who also happens to be the Minister for Pacific Peoples, praised Sir Colin Tukuitonga for his contribution to health and wished him well for the future. While Sir Colin leaves the public sector amid the changing political landscape, Christchurch-based Pacific community advocate Melissa Lama says it's motivated her to re-enter the space and advocate for Pacifica. I was sad and gutted as a young person, as a Pacific woman, as a brown person going into the public sector right now in this political spectrum. I really want to come in with skills and, and contribute in a different way towards the positive outcomes that even Sir Colin and myself and everyone else in the community want to achieve. She says it's unfair that Sir Colin had to choose between being a critic and voice for his community with giving up his position of influence. We shouldn't be setting the precedent that someone like Dr Sir Colin has to leave his space in order to represent and speak authentically about what is needed for our people. There's got to be a better way in which we as public servants can still have a voice for our community and be who we are. Because when you're talking about Pacific, they're essentially talking about me. I still live 
in overcrowded houses. I've grown up in overcrowded houses. People in my family are still trying to buy their first homes. They make low minimum wage income. Some are on the sickness benefit. So everything that is happening that I'm contributing to is also affecting my family. And I think that's where I'm getting, as you can tell in my voice, I get really, really emotional. Member of the National Pacific Health Senate, Dr Kiki Moate, says he doesn't plan to step down and wasn't aware of any other members choosing to resign either. I'd resign probably because, not because of the government, I'd resign probably because there's too much work to do and, uh, and, and getting tugged around the place. Of course we will work with the government for the next three years, if they stand for three years, because that's, that's the process. And then the outcomes of what we work with, you know, that's the opportunity then to say whether it's working or not or to, to reflect and push back and, and debate. And I don't see the debate happening from uh, outside in. The debate's got to be inside and around the table. Unlike Sir Collins' approach, which is now to speak up and speak out from the outside in. Despite the varied perspectives, everyone involved is united about holding the coalition government to account in their own way. Pacific climate campaigners are condemning the latest draft of the COP28 agreement as a meaningless wish list of optional actions and say it's a death warrant if they sign it. The draft text doesn't mention a phase-out of fossil fuels. Instead, it lists eight options that countries could use to cut emissions, including reducing both consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly and equitable manner so as to achieve net zero by before or around 2050. Caleb Fotheringham has more. Chair of the Alliance of Small Island States and Samoa's Environment Minister Cedric Schuster told media in Dubai the text uses completely insufficient language. If we do not have strong mitigation outcomes at this COP, this will be the COP where 1.5 would have died. We will not sign our gift certificate. We cannot sign on to text that does not have strong commitments on phasing out fossil fuels. The chair once again reiterated the same message he's been using throughout the meeting, that small islands need global warming to be limited to 1.5 degrees. How can you not understand? It is our very survival that is at stake. This is why in every room our negotiators have been pushing tirelessly for decisions that align with staying under 1.5 degrees of warming. Other actions outlined in the text includes tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030, rapidly phasing down unabated coal and scaling up technologies including those to capture CO2 emissions to keep them from the atmosphere. But there was no mention of a phase out of fossil fuels many nations have demanded. Lavitana Langi Saru from the Pacific Islands Climate Action Network says the document is extremely concerning. The lack of agreed actions to phase out fossil fuel and invest in clean energy has kind of left us with a meaningless wish list of optional actions and I don't think that's helpful. He says the language is not akin to the messages over the last two weeks that the 1.5 goal is the northern star. Remaining within 1.5, it's not a nice to have, but it is a must have. And COP28 must deliver a set of science-based action in response to the global stock take that can take all countries back on track to deliver on the goals of the Paris Agreement. Oil Change International's David Tong likewise says the language is disappointing. He warned the remaining part of negotiations will be messy as countries work to complete a final text. We've been calling for a a comprehensive energy package and what we have here is 
is a pick and choose menu, a buffet full of dead rats. David Tong says he has seen the tactic before of dropping a weakened text 24 hours before the outcome and then giving a better one on the last day. The meeting finishes on Tuesday Dubai time. Bougainville's quest for independence from Papua New Guinea has been put on the back burner, with the PNG government putting off the tabling of the independence referendum until next year. Bougainville has been wanting the parliament to quickly ratify the referendum, for which the PNG government says an absolute majority decision by MPs will be needed. Bougainville's lead negotiator, Ezekiel Masat, and the PNG government's Minister of Bougainville Affairs, Manisa Makiba, we are told get on well, but discussions between both parties have been few in recent months. So, what is set to happen on the Bougainville issue? Don Wiseman put some of these issues to University of Wollongong Emeritus Professor of Politics, Ted Wolfers, who has long been an advisor to the PNG government on Bougainville issues. We've had Ezekiel Massart just recently come out mm. and rail against the PNG government for constantly referring to the non-binding referendum. And he says in the literature, in the peace agreement, in the constitution, there's no reference to it being non-binding. At the same time, I know that there's no reference to it being binding. So what do you make of it all? The Bougainville Peace Agreement is quite explicit. It says that the outcome will be subject to ratification, which in brackets is defined as the final decision-making authority of the national parliament. So right from the very beginning, there was a recognition that ratification, so-called, means final decision-making authority. It doesn't mean approval or doesn't necessarily mean approval. So I'm a bit surprised by the argument that's going on at the moment. Uh, Mr. Massad is technically correct, isn't he? Well, he's correct in saying that there's no reference to the word non-binding. But as I said, the Bougainville Peace Agreement is quite clear that the outcome is subject to the final decision-making authority of the national parliament. In other words, it applies only insofar as the national parliament agrees to it. When you have a referendum that's 97.7% in favour of independence, this ratification process, I think, is viewed on Bougainville anyway as something that should be rubber stamping, essentially. What sort of authority does ratification give uh, the national parliament? Well, there's no question that the final decision is up to the national parliament. That's what I'm saying right from the very beginning. Ratification was defined as the final decision-making authority of the national parliament. There's never been any question, in my view, about that legal position. But, of course, there is a very sensitive set of political issues which need to be addressed in the process. There's clearly an awkward situation that's developed because there hasn't been a lot of talking, it would seem, yet we have this supposed timetable of everything being resolved possibly as early as 2025, which is just around the corner, mm. and definitely by 2027. And as far as mm. Bougainville is concerned, by 2027, they expect to be independent or the vast majority do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's always been a sensitive issue at the heart of this, that the national government has never been willing to concede the sovereign rights of the state to make the final decision through its political processes. Whereas, of course, quite surprisingly in some respects, Bougainville seems now almost united in saying it wants independence. 
I think part of the difficulty is that there hasn't been enough discussion about what independence entails. There are quite a number of options, aren't there? One that has been floated is something like the compacts of free association that the US has with several states in the North Pacific. Well, whether people committed to a single state in Papua New Guinea are willing to agree to it, I really can't say. But independence around the world has diverse meanings. I mean, Australia still has an Englishman as the head of state. Sometimes the connections that are kept are essentially symbolic and sometimes they're very substantive. And it's not just a question of political and legal sensitivities. It's also a cost-benefit thing that an independent Bougainville, and look, I'm not clear on this, but I don't think the maps have ever been drawn. It might not be part of an archipelagic state anymore. And so its maritime boundaries might not be as broad as they are now. There's a whole range of those sorts of issues. I mean, the maritime ones are particularly obvious under the law of the sea, but, you know, they also come up in, in, in quite different connections of how people view the utility of having landing rights and all sorts of things. Fishing rights is probably a big thing, isn't it, right now? Well, control of the maritime environment, yes. And I can't draw the maps, but on my estimations of it, an independent Bougainville would no longer have the extended maritime boundaries that it currently has as part of Papua New Guinea. I guess the big worry is that if it's not sorted and if these different parties can't sit down together and discuss things and make it clear about what is going to happen, that, I don't know, there could be a return to violence or something like that? It's not impossible that some people would feel that way about it, but I think those who've been through the peace process and so on are probably pretty reticent about just returning to violence. But it doesn't mean to say that there aren't some people who feel strongly about it. But I think the other thing is if you put these implications on the table, what it would mean for your maritime rights and your other transport and so on rights, it may be that you can you know, define a, a form of independence that keeps everybody reasonably happy. It doesn't seem to me to be impossible to reach that, but it would be, it would take a lot of care and a lot of commitment to do that. You yourself, have you got any ideas about what might be preferable in terms of a type of independence? Look, the answer has to be no. I haven't spent time working out what I would prefer because my job's been to understand what other people are saying and doing. But I don't think it would be impossible to negotiate a mutually acceptable outcome, but it would take a lot of care and a lot of technical competence to get there, I think. In 1978, the iconic Maota Samoa building was opened in central Auckland. It was the first traditional Samoan fale or house to be built outside of the island. Samoan leaders at the time envisioned the building as a thriving community and business hub for the Samoan and wider Pacifica peoples. Established during the infamous dawn raids, Maota Samoa rose as a place of hope and gathering. It was seen as a place of safety and cultural pride. This Saturday, Malta Samoa will be celebrating its 45th birthday. Joining me to talk about its history and legacy is Olivia Tauma from the grassroots committee Friends of Malta Samoa. Talofa lover, Olivia, what have you got planned for the upcoming celebration? Talofa lover, um, I'm part of the Friends of Malta Samoa and we've got an amazing celebration of the Malta Samoa on Karangahapi Road, Auckland's 
45th birthday this Saturday, the 16th of December, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And um, we've got an array of uh, Pacific community uh, stalls with Moana Fresh, um, Little Island Markets, and also um, cupcakes and food. And we also have amazing uh, workshops with um, Numa McKenzie um, doing printed Pacific um, toga bags. Um, and uh, we also have the amazing uh, tapa, um, Tawaki Tapa by Ebony and Kisaya. We have the Popo hardware uh, T-shirts with Silinga. Uh, we have Te Tumu uh, Weaved Kete by Ta'i, Tioka Ta'i by Ta'i. We have the um, Prince of Paradise, that was the one with Numa McKenzie. And we also have Doran doing a Ngatu workshop as well. And there's, there's so much to do here, but I think the main objective is to um, breathe some of our Pacific community um, energy and breath back into the Māota Samoa and um, reconnect our communities to her heart at the moment. There has been a bit of a disconnect over the number of years and I think with um, the music, the uh, workshops and the very special history panel talk by our um, senior artist Fatu Fiu'u, uh, Jan Tauma, and uh, Leali Ifano, Albert Rafiti, um, and Afamasanga, uh, Afionga, Afamasanga Tolia Foa. Uh, it's going to be an exciting time to listen, to share, to um, create, to buy, to laugh, to remember, and share memories of the Malta Samoa. Now, um, before we get into that, this connection part. I'm just going to take it right back to the Maota's very beginnings. How did the idea to establish such a hub come about? The Maota Samoa uh, originally was um, a place a lot of our Samoan community at first um, in connection to PIC Church uh, with some of our Cook Island and Nuea uh, communities um, driven by a need for a place to gather, a place to feel safe, a place um, of pride um, and placement for our Pacific people in this country in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And this is at a time in the 19, late 1970s when we were being targeted with the Dawn Raids and the trauma of the Dawn Raids that was happening in particular for our Tongan and Samoan communities and so the um, fundraising started to happen in 1977 and through 1978. And there was a petition from the community for the government of Samoa to get involved. They came on board and then worked with the New Zealand government to um, create a consul general base for Samoa, and literally meaning that this piece of land um, and property be in ownership of the government of Samoa. And on uh, 15th of December 1978, she was opened and opened by the Right Honourable New Zealand Prime Minister Muldoon, who was also the Prime Minister 
that was heading the Dawn Raid. So it was quite ironic in that space that our people um, really saw this as an opportunity to build a place to gather, to have pride, to have safety, to have unity, but also have the person that was persecuting them and and, um, targeting us be the one to open it in recognition of our place in this country. Yeah, you mentioned ironic, and it would have been also awkward at the opening, given Muldoon's role in the Dawn Raids. Yeah, was there ever a time in which the building acted uh, then as a refuge for Pacifica migrants who were struggling to settle in? I think in a different form in that it was a place that many came to the Consul General for support um, for the government. We also had um, um, Polynesian Airlines based there, so people had to come in to work out um, travel over the years. But it was also a place for many of our ministers who met and also a place for um, our youth at risk and and. Migrant people did come in there. We also had uh, education um, around cooking. There was education classes there around um, understanding how to learn how to use things here in this country and how what services are provided for our people here. There were um, a lot of educational focus, actually, for our people in that place. So it's fair to say that this is more than a building. There's a rich legacy attached to the Malta, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so what significance does Malta Samoa has with the Pacific community today here in Auckland? I think there is a, is a significance in the, the fact that it is the first, well, historically it is significant in that it was the first Fale Samoa ever built outside of Samoa. It's not completely traditional, but it is the first. And it was the first place for us as Pacific people to have in remembrance of our traditions in the islands to connect and gather and learn and um, and have a whole lot of businesses, Pacific businesses in one place. That was another thing that it supplied and provided access to. And it was a place that um, for us, now that we really see as a focal point of telling our Pacific history stories. A lot of people who come into Auckland um, and our young people, like my children, they don't understand that many of our people lived in Greylin and Ponsonby and that K Road was really our hub of all uh, our communities and that's why our church, PIC Newton, was built there as the first Pacific church in this country and why the Malta Samoa was built there. And that history is really important for our people. It's going to be in the new curriculum of our education and schools, and it's going to be a place where our people can understand some of the, not just hardships, but also some of the glorious things that our people achieved and contributed to in this country. Um, and that that is a hub and a focal point that could be told from the Malta Samoa as the iconic building that it is. 
That's Pacific Waves for today. Alicia Foon will be filling in for me until the show's last program for the year on December 22nd. It's been a busy and exciting year as your host, and never have I been so blessed to share your stories. Don't forget you can always head over to rnzi.com slash programs to listen back. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, Manuela Grisi Masi Mele Tau Sangafou, Tau Fa Soi Fua.